This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Thomas Horn is standing by to discuss a cosmic cover-up of end-time proportions. And he'll be here for the full two hours. Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And we are streaming live on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. Uh, say, have you signed up for my free monthly newsletter yet? The Inner Sanctum. It's a jam-packed with great content. And all you need to do to receive it is register at strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. It takes but a moment. And once you've registered, you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for, for Great Strange Planet gear. T-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, mugs, phone cases, socks, and more. Why not do it right now? Just, to, just go to strangeplanet.ca. And, of course, it's uh, delivered right to your uh, your inbox. But... You remember when we actually used to get real mail? Isn't it such great fun when we get... I got a, a, a nice little card here. I'm going to open it up live on the air. This is such a rarity. This is a lovely Hanukkah card. Uh, like like the Hanukkah candles that shine. Richard Serrett, you bring your own special light and warmth to the world. Have a wonderful Hanukkah and a Merry Christmas from Melanie who's in Etobicoke. Melanie, thank you so much. What a treat that is to actually get real mail. (laughs) Thank you for that. All right. Does Revelation chapter 8 verses 10 and 11 describe an asteroid? Is the Wormwood star from Revelation 8 already headed toward Earth? Are NASA and high-level government officials aware of an asteroid that it's on a collision course with our planet? Is that why President Trump sanctioned a colossal increase to planetary defense? Did the prophecies from ancient cultures and religions across the globe all point to a catastrophic planetary event that has scientists and politicians taking extreme preventative measures under the public radar? Strap yourselves in and get ready for a wild ride, friends. Thomas Horn is a longtime television and radio personality, best-selling author and publisher. He serves as the chief executive officer of Skywatch TV, known for its breaking news and in-depth investigative reports about prophecy, conspiracies, and the supernatural. He's also the founder of Defender Films and Defender Publishing. Thomas has discussed his cutting-edge discoveries in a variety of media, including Sid Roth's It's Supernatural, The Jim Baker Show, and, of course, Coast to Coast AM. His latest is 
the Wormwood Prophecy, NASA, and a cosmic cover-up to end uh, of end-time proportions. Thomas, welcome aboard. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing great, and thank you for having me back on again. My pleasure. So, uh, what does Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 actually say? Uh, yeah, um, it says, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Um, interestingly, here in Revelation 8, where it says a star fell from heaven, that is the Greek word aster or astron, from which we make the word asteroid, and so that could also be read as a great asteroid fell from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. Wormwood. What is what is Wormwood? Why was that star named Wormwood? Yeah. Have you ever had Dr. Michael Heiser on your program? No, no. Uh, well, I would highly suggest it. I mean, he is, um, he is a, a Bible scholar of the first rank, um, but he's also a guy that loves talking about um, the paranormal. Uh, he's been on quite a few times on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. But I anyway, get I, I have I, so many people. You're not the only one. So many people have asked me to have him on, and that's definitely he's definitely on my to-do list. Yeah, I would highly suggest it. But if you were to ask him, because I did, given the fact that he's a he's an ancient language expert. In fact, he's probably only one of ten people in the world that can in, uh, translate uh, extinct languages to the degree that he can. Um, ancient languages that have been forgotten to history, and that's really his forte, that's his Ph.D. Uh, but so I asked him, I said, if, uh, if I were to ask an early church father about this text, Revelation 8, what would they make of the Wormwood prophecy? And he said most of them then would have translated Wormwood as... First of all, an angel, because uh, in those days when they talked about a star, so much of the Bible, you know, uses that terminology, a star, in reference to an angel. Right. The seven angels throughout the churches of Asia. In fact, Revelation 9, immediately following Revelation 8, a star fell from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and unto him was given the key. So it's a, it's a personification uh, of, uh, of a heavenly entity. And so he told me that most early church fathers would imagine Wormwood referencing probably an angel of judgment, a fallen angel that falls to the earth and brings famine and chaos and so on onto the earth. The etymology, I go into all this stuff in the book, and it, we could get bogged down in it, so I don't want to uh, bother your listeners with it. But um, there's a case could be made. Uh, for suggesting that the meaning behind the word refers to bitterness. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, you know, even Chernobyl out of ah, Russia. Yes, I was going to uh, ask you about that, because uh, our, our good friend, Pastor Carl Gallops, yes. uh, he, he sort of made that case that, that Wormwood is Chernobyl, and, and some have suggested that actually Chernobyl in Ukrainian means Wormwood. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, that's what I've been told. I can't speak, um, you know, Russian. Um, but that, or Ukrainian, but that is what I've been told as well, that that's what it means. But in any case, um, now, for me, though, this discussion involves something that I did not anticipate, 
Um, I didn't enter into 2019 early in the year saying, hey, you know what I ought to do? I ought to write a book about Wormwood. Um, For me, the way this started was with a metaphysical experience that I have had on a few occasions in my life that I have only very rarely, and by that I mean only a couple of times in my lifetime, have I talked about it publicly or in media. Uh, and But it is something that has happened with me, and each time that it has, it has been 100% accurate. Now, let me explain to your listeners that might be scratching their head right now wondering what I'm talking about. Uh, when I, and this over 40 years ago, 45 years ago, um, I was this uh, young, you know, preacher and just wanted to be so involved in ministry and literally just every day hungry, begging God to let me be in ministry, right? Just young mm-hmm. and hungry. And <clears throat> so I come home and I was at work one night and I, I, during my whole lunch break, I went in a back room in a dark room uh, where these big silos were as a big, huge bakery. Um, and I turned out all the lights and I'm in there just begging God to let me be in the ministry. So I come home that evening. Uh, and uh, I go to bed. Now, the next thing, Richard, that I know, uh, I am standing in front of a very, very brilliant white light. Somehow in my mind, I know that I'm standing before God. Uh, I also know that he has told me some things, but then he has told me that I am not going to remember them, and it was time for me to go back. And the last thing I recall, vivid as much today as it was to me 45 years ago, uh, was me saying out loud, but please don't let me forget. Please don't let me forget. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I started falling backward, as if I had fallen out of an airplane with my back towards the earth, and I'm falling through space. I could see the bright light and all of that moving very quickly away from me. And as you know, people that have had uh, supernatural experiences, NEDs, that kind of thing, yes. quite often describe this very brilliant light. 100%. And, uh, and I'm falling away from it very quickly. Uh, all of a sudden, I literally see the roof of my house go around me, and I fall on my bed with a thud. Uh, and immediately I sit up in bed, I take in this deep breath, <gasps> like that, and now I'm, I'm no longer in whatever this vision, dream state, whatever it was. I'm no longer in that. I'm literally sitting up in my bed. And I'm sitting there kind of trying to collect what in the world had just happened. When I hear my beautiful young wife, Nita, weeping, and I turn on the bed and I look, and she's sitting up on the bed, and, she's, and I can tell she's been bawling, right? Uh, and it take and I'm asking her, babe, what's the matter? What's the matter? It takes her a few moments to collect herself, and finally, through her stuttered language, she explains to me that she had woke up in the middle of the night around 2 a.m. and I was dead. I had no breath. I had no heartbeat. I had no pulse. My word. Uh, and for 15 minutes or so, she's been beating on my chest, breathing into my mouth, trying to resuscitate me. Doesn't know what she's doing. There was no cell phones back then that hadn't been invented. We didn't even have a rotary phone, and we lived uh, you know, in the country far enough away that she couldn't walk to the next neighbor. Right. And she had literally just been sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to have to drag him by the feet out into the car and drive to the hospital My uh, to see if they can do something for him. Anyway, uh, 
Um, now, the next morning, i got to make this quicker. The next morning, I went to my pastor, and I told him what had happened. Uh, and I learned that day what the New Testament means when it says, you know, not to give what is holy to dogs or cast your pearls before a swine. Not that my pastor was a dog or a swine, but he totally did not get what I was talking about, <laughs> and he thought I had just ate too many chili beans, right, uh, before I went to bed that evening. So it, it then what happened was it had the reverse effect on me. I closed it up. I sealed it up. I would never talk about it publicly with anybody except my wife, of course, years later, my children. Um, but uh, at that time, every single day, I was praying, and I was saying, God, I, I don't understand this. You know, what was this about? Because it was so vivid. Richard, I don't know if you've interviewed people that have had NDEs or any of those oh, kind of many, things Oh, many, 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 yes. Uh, but if they try to describe the, how vivid that plane is, you actually you can't describe it because we you know we try to communicate in terms of the five senses that we have here so you know yeah. smell touch doesn't feel. cut it <laughs> not adequate and and it's not it's it there it's like you have a thousand senses anyway so um, every day I'm praying and I'm saying God what was the point in that I don't understand it with all respect. Why would you show somebody something, then say you're not going to remember? It just didn't even make sense you're to me right. at all. You're right. And for the first time in my life, I was praying through the Bible. I had never, pre- I had never read through the Bible uh, in my life. I was reading through the Bible. And I happened to, about four weeks later, now, I happened to come across uh, the book of Job, chapter 33. And when my eyes fell on these verses, they literally leaped off the pages at me. It was a complete Logos Rhema experience. And here's what it says uh, in Job 33. This was the first time I understood what had happened, 33:14, And it says, For God speaks once, yea, twice, yet man perceives it not in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumbering upon the bed. Mm. Then... He opens the ears of men and seals their instructions that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man, end quote. And I'm telling you, when I read that, even as this young novice preacher who didn't know anything about theology, I totally got that he had sealed information within me that later on in my life, would become important. Now, why would he not let me remember? He actually explains that here in two different phrases. He says, number one, to withdraw man from his purpose. So, of course, Richard, you would know that as a very young, hungry Christian, if I had known where God was going to take me someday, that I was going to, you know, own my own television network, be on television, own a publishing house, you know, be on all this, these other, you know, famous celebrity Christians, right? I hate those terms. But that I'm going to be on their programs, what would I have done? I would have aimed at it. Right. And I would have done everything I could to make that happen. What I would not have done is gone through all of the, you know, the school of life, all of the hard knocks and the things you have right. to learn. Right. It would have been the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. And then the second thing he says is to hide pride from man. 
which of course as a young preacher had I seen everything that I would be doing today, it would have been very easy for me to get lifted up. I don't know if I would have or not, but it would have been certainly a temptation Absolutely. to think of myself as more than I should. But that was the very first time. Now, why am I, why am I bringing that up? Because on several occasions in my life, and by the way, I would love for somebody listening to your program to email me or write in or something and give me their theory around why this is true, but it is always right around 2 a.m. in the morning. It was the very first time it happened. It has been every time since then. Because when I wake up, the first thing I do is I look at the clock, and it's always right at 2 a.m. Right. I don't know what the significance of that is. It is significant. I'll tell you, I do talk about the paranormal on the program, and I'm I'm conflicted by a lot of it for obvious reasons. But people talk about 3 a.m., or two between 2 and 3 a.m. as being sort of that magic hour when most of these types of experiences happen. Well, I've never understood it. And, of course, most of my studies have been limited, you know, to biblical studies and that kind of thing, although I have also had an interest in studying, you know, the New Age and, and other kinds of paranormal experiences, like I mentioned NEDs a moment ago. In fact, I'm publishing a new book right now called Afterlife, which does case studies into NEDs and is it evidence of life after death and that kind of thing. And a man that has an experience has a difficult time trying to explain that to somebody else to the degree that it could somehow help them understand the potency of it, the impact of it on an individual life. I don't know that you can. But in my life, on a few occasions since then, since, you know, 45 years ago, I have been drawn around 2 a.m. into very, 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 very vivid dreamscape. This is not like normal dreaming. It's panoramic. It's full color. It's like a full-on Hollywood special effects type thing. And so far as I know, when I'm in it, it is absolutely real. I'm not aware at all that I am in a night vision. By the way, the New Testament it has a word for this in the Greek. It's called ecstasia. Uh, it's actually from which we make the word ecstasy. Ah. But in the New Testament, it's not ecstasy in you know, the way we typically translate that today. Peter in the New Testament, the book of Acts, it says he, he fell into a trance. And he began seeing things. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church says that he was caught up into the third heaven, and whether he was in the body or out of the body, he did not know. That's the Greek ecstasia, and I think that that is what this is. But in any case, on a few occasions in my life, I've been shown things in dream states that happened, and and so far, so far, 100% of the time, they have come to pass exactly as I have seen them. My family could testify to this. And I'll give you a, a for instance, by the way, that your audience would be able to both verify and identify with. 2010, mm-hmm. 2 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, this very vivid depiction plays out in my mind as I'm asleep. Part of it I can't explain. It's like I can hear a large engine that is running in the background. I don't have no clue what that means. But I see these very dark clouds that are rising up over the Vatican. And it's very spooky, very eerie. And suddenly, I wake up and I sit up in bed 
And in that moment, I know that Pope Benedict XVI is going to resign, and not only that he's going to, but exactly when he's going to. Now, I can prove this because I wrote the book Petrus Romanus. Chris Putnam and I were out doing television programs. Chris Putnam did not want me to say on radio or television that Benedict was going to resign in April of 2012 because he thought if it didn't happen, it was going to Uh hurt the book that we were on book tour with at that time. But I started doing it anyway. So I I did this on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. I did it on, I think, Coast to Coast with George Norrie. I did it with Jim Baker on his program. I did it on Prophecy Watchers. And some of these are out there on YouTube. People can go and watch them. Where in 2011, one year before the resignation of Pope Benedict, uh, I said Pope Benedict is going to resign, he's going to retire, and he's going to do it in April of 2012. Thomas, I'm going to jump in here, because we're going to take a quick time out. When we'll come back, this will be a bit of a cliffhanger, we'll um, we'll pick up on this point. Okay. Thomas Horn, The Wormwood Prophecy, NASA, Donald Trump, and a cosmic cover-up of end-time proportions. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thomas Horn stays with us, the Wormwood Prophecy. And uh, Thomas, you were telling us about this um, this vivid dream, this prescient dream you had about the the uh, resignation of Pope Benedict XVI. You had it a year before, or at least, no, two years before, I guess, sometimes in, in 2010, but it uh, he, he actually stepped down, unprecedented. He stepped down in April of 2012. So uh, you wanted to finish off that story. Yeah, so here I was. I'm out there on, in all this media, some of it with large audiences, I'm, I'm, and I'm going out on a limb, right? And uh, my buddy Chris Putnam, who's since passed away, very young, 50 years of age, heart failure, um, but uh, he's, you know, my research companion in the book Petrus Romanus, which became an international bestseller, uh, and he's concerned that if I'm saying this and it don't happen, then, you know, people are going to, you know, they're going to say that our book's a crock or whatever. Right. But I just felt compelled to do it because I knew that this had never failed me before. So here's a very interesting thing. Your audience will, will love this. So here I am, 2011, and I'm saying I believe Pope Benedict is going to resign in April of 2012. Now, 2012 comes and goes does not appear that Benedict XVI has resigned. Uh, and at that time, I started getting, you know, a lot of emails, especially from Catholics, uh, my Catholic friends who were telling me, you see, you have no idea what you're talking about. Popes don't resign. They die in office. And that had been true for more than 500 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was super unlikely that this was going to happen. Uh, and at that point, I thought, oh, okay, well, this, is, this has never failed me before, but now suddenly something's different. Uh, but then, February 28, 2013, the Vatican announces that Pope Benedict XVI has stepped down, that he has resigned. And that very same day, people can Google this and read it for themselves, that very same day, the Vatican's news media outlet, the El Observatorio Romano, 
gave an interview uh, to um, a journalist at the New York Times. And in that interview, they said Pope Benedict actually, officially, secretly resigned when he returned from a trip in April of 2012. Bingo. And the Vatican had been keeping it secret. Uh, they had taken a, a, a little building that the nuns had been using that was there at St. Peter's Square. They were remodeling it, getting it ready to be the, the apartment that the emeritus pope was going to live in. So they had all their reasons why they were doing They wanted to get the, you know, the, the, the conclave ready and all that for the vote. But the point was, brother, starting that day and for probably six months, my phone was ringing off the hook. And I had CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, everybody was asking me uh, if I would. Uh, CNN, in fact, I turned them down a couple of times. I told them I don't do fake news. But they <laughs> said, well, we, we, will, <laughs> we will come to Springfield. We have a, a, a facility there we can use as a remote studio. We want to interview you. We want to know, you know, who uh, was your insider at the Vatican. How could you possibly have known this a year in advance? Now, the problem, Richard, and I know because of your program and the program you host that you understand this, was there would be no way to explain to them how I knew. They would never get it. They would never understand it. They would never buy the idea of supernaturalism or a revelation um, they would just never get that. And so I turned down all interview opportunities except the ones where I knew that they, you know, that they understood. Right. Sid Roth, coast to coast. Yeah. Yeah. Even, yeah, even coast to coast. I went on and did it with George Norrie and, and we talked about it on there. Now what, now why am I talking about all of that and what does this have to do with the Wormwood prophecy? Because now, for the third time in my life, the, uh, at some point in the future, we'll do a different program. I'll tell you the first time I ever made predictions that involved the death of a man and some other things and gave it to the Oregon District of the Assemblies of God uh, in uh, uh, Oregon, and it came to pass exactly. And I wrote it all down and sent it to him, and it came to pass exactly as I had stated. But I'll tell you about that one at some other point. So early this year, this was the third time, and this always happens. 2 a.m. 2 a.m., but also I can't make it happen. It's God, and it's beyond me, and it's God as I perceive it. So early this year, 2019, uh, I go to bed, not expecting anything. 2 a.m., I suddenly enter into the... And this one is the most vivid, most terrifying dream state yet, in which I saw what looked like a horn. It looked like a fiery serpent, like a dragon, way, way up in the heavens, hundreds of feet wide, plunging through the heavens, racing towards the earth at this incomprehensible speed, and I, I absolutely have no clue what I'm looking at. Then, all of a sudden, you know how it is in a dream, your point of view can change rapidly. My point of view changes, and suddenly I'm up above this terrifying dragon, and I could see that, in fact, what it was was a large space rock, an asteroid. Mm. And due to the way that it's rotating and the way the light of the sun is playing off the contours of this huge stone, it only makes it look like it's moving serpent-like or undulating through space towards the Earth. Now, all of a sudden, I see myself, I'm back on Earth again. 
and I'm on top of this very tall hill, and there's a huge crowd of people around me, and we are all running as fast as we possibly can as this thing behind our back is racing towards the earth. Hordes of people, and everybody, by the way, everybody is screaming, crying out to their gods uh, to deliver them from what is com- coming. Then I hear this incredible, incredible boom. I hear a cracking sound, and all of the ground beneath us start, and everybody falls down. You can't stand up. Um, and uh, I, I, I look over my shoulder to see that whatever this thing is, it has plunged into what I perceive to be the Pacific Ocean. It's knocked us all off of our feet. This massive form sends this whole sequence of tsunamis, hundreds of feet in height, uh, moving just rapidly, slamming into the coastal terrains, all you know, basically all around the world. My perception is going back and forth. I'm seeing it as if I'm on the ground, and then I'm seeing it as if I'm, it's God's point of view, and I'm looking down upon the earth. All of a sudden, I see this massive wall of water, and it's coming up over the top of the hill that me and everybody else is on, and we're running. Uh, and, and I know that there is no way in the world we're going to escape this. At that moment, I know we're all dead. We're all dying. And everybody is screaming. It's, the most, it's just the most terrifying thing ever. All of a sudden, the atmosphere is infused with scorched particles of aerosol and vapor that are coming up off of the ocean. Uh, there's this blistering culmination of moisture and extreme heat that's rising up from the sea into the Earth's atmosphere, which... And by the way, what's funny is I don't know anything about atmospheric conditions. I don't, I'm not a meteorologist. I don't know how weather works. But as I'm in this dream state, I see this heat rising up, and all of a sudden the atmosphere is infused with these high-velocity hurricanes uh, and debris being kicked up from the ground, from a second impact, actually, which I go into in the book, and we don't have time on this program to, you know, try to recreate all of these details. Uh, but it's devastating. So all this material is moving up into the earth, and for about a week, darkness covers the sky worldwide as the entire landscape is pounded by these hurricanes and atmospheric annihilation. And, and then somehow I'm aware that about a week later, the waters are starting to settle, the storms are starting to subside, the sky is growing clear, and a great deal of life on Earth is dead. Right at that moment, I wake up. I set up in my bed, Richard, so quickly that I literally almost fell out of bed. Uh, I always keep a writing pad next to my bed in case this happens. I, I set up in my bed, I grab my writing paper and my pen, I'm going to start writing down what I saw, And it was literally as if a voice in the room whispered in my ear one word, and that is the word apophis. Mm. Now, you know, I will admit that I I didn't know really anything about it. I knew that there was an... I didn't at that time, by the way, I didn't even realize it was an Egyptian god, but I knew that there was an ancient god of chaos by the name of apophis. I also knew that NASA had named an asteroid Apophis, but I didn't know anything about it at all. And so I got up, I started writing down everything that I had seen, I went to my computer and I started doing the research, 
long story short, all of that is what wound up causing me both to write the uh, book, um, The Wormwood Prophecy, and convinced me, and we can go into this if you want to, convinced me that in about nine years from right now, Friday the 13th, April 2029, Apophis is going to strike the earth, and that it is the fulfillment of Revelation 8 as the uh, Wormwood asteroid. All right, Thomas, hold it right there. We'll take a time out, we'll come back and uh, delve into Apophis. Is this a planet killer? Is this a fulfillment of Revelation 8, verses 10 and 11? Is Apophis Wormwood? We'll discuss with Thomas Horn on the other side. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. From somewhere deep inside the Great White North, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Longtime TV and radio personality, best-selling author, publisher Thomas Horn is with us. He is also the CEO of Skywatch TV and his latest, The Wormwood Prophecy, NASA, Donald Trump, and a cosmic cover-up of end-time proportions. Well, Thomas, you've certainly established your bona fides in terms of these prescient dreams. So this asteroid, this space rock that happens to be named after the Egyptian god of chaos... Give us its vitals. How, how big is it? Where is it situated? And so forth. Yeah, this was discovered uh, in June of 2004. Astronomers at the Kitt Peak National Observatory detected this sizable asteroid heading toward Earth. And so they began studying it. They brought it to uh, NASA's NEOWISE team's attention, and pretty soon all of the leading astronomers were looking at it and, you know, the ideas around trajectory and abido and... You mentioned you know, Neo, NeoWise. Let me just... That's uh, Near Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. Their job is to keep an eye out for these things, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And essentially right now they're monitoring 165,000 known asteroids, but people should be aware that it could be that even the majority of asteroids to this day continue to be undetected. In fact, NASA's own statistics say that probably 70% of space threats right now remain undetected. And many of them, they only pick them up when they're within days of entering our atmosphere. Those are the smaller car-sized ones. But wormwood, apophis, and excuse me, if I use the term wormwood, as I'm referring to an asteroid, you'll know I'm talking about Apophis because that's the way it is in my head now. But discovered 2004. Now, the diameter, you ask about the, you know, the particulars. It's estimated to be approximately 370 meters or 1,200 feet across. Or to put that into perspective, this is approximately four football fields. Mm. Now, this stone is estimated to be about 20 million metric tons. It is traveling at 28,000 miles an hour. So all of that, you know, if a person is an impact specialist, and basically what they're saying is this is a mind-bending mass, a potential inertia velocity encounter that the average human cannot even begin to fathom. If Apophis does impact the Earth, they're mapping 
program tells them that it is most likely that it is going to hit the air somewhere around the coastlines of California and Mexico, so a very highly densely populated area. The impact is going to unleash a blast, the equivalent of over a billion tons of TNT. Mm. Now, to put that into perspective, that's an explosion larger than nearly all nukes on Earth today going off all at the same time in one place. Or to also put it into perspective, it would be equivalent to 65,000 of the Hiroshima nuclear bombs that sunk Nagasaki. So all in one place, it would probably crack the mantle of the Earth. It's a planet killer several times over. It could be. Depending on where it hits the Earth, NASA's own statistics say that it's going to be at a minimum tens of millions, but probably more in the billions of deaths mm. just from the initial impact. Now, if you're not a prophecy believer and you don't think the way that my worldview uh, tends to look at this stuff, then you would look at this and say that you know the, the impact from years of climate disruption is going to literally lead to a near, if not an earth-destroying phenomenon, nearly that. A huge amount of the earth is going to be destroyed. And, of course, that's what's implied in Revelation chapter 8, many men, which in in the language there it means a huge number of people on earth. Uh, are going to die all at one time. And now, ETA I, was April 13th, 2029. Yeah, so get that date, right? Friday the 13th, hmm. 2029. Now, uh, in the beginning, NASA uh, and the people at Kitt Peak National Observatory and the NEOWISE team, they believed that there was um, a measurable chance that Apophis is going to strike the Earth on that date in about nine years from now. Now, later, they changed their dating, and Richard, um, this is where I suggest in the book, The Wormwood Prophecy, that there is a cover-up. And we can go into some of the reasons why I say that, but they changed their dating, and now they say that it is probably not going to impact the Earth on that date in nine years from now. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Hang on, I'm going to I'm going to jump in again. Pardon the interruption. We'll uh, break away for a, oh, just a moment or two. We'll come back. Thomas Horn uh, telling us about this potential planet killer, Apophis. Something wicked this way comes. Is it Friday, April the thirteenth, twenty twenty nine? Well, Neo Wise. That is the. Uh, the agency charged with tracking these uh, these asteroids, these space rocks, they say, no, wait a minute now, just hold on. Sounds like a cover-up. Thomas Horn will explain on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Strap yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a quick programming note. Uh, a few days ago, I was driving in the car, and I didn't have my uh, my cell phone uh, on Bluetooth, so I couldn't pick up. It was a message, a rather cryptic message from Ambassador Lee Wanta, who has been on this program before, but it's been quite a while, and he left kind of a cryptic message hinting that he had some blockbuster new information. 
So we're going to endeavor to get the gentleman who goes by a number of names, including President Reagan's secret agent, and also, um, what's the other name he goes by? What is it now? $67 trillion man or something like that. Anyway, he's, uh, well, self-confessed uh, secret agent who says he brought down the Soviet Union using uh, a number of currency swaps and different complicated financial maneuvers without firing a shot. That was uh, Lee Wanta working behind the scenes who did that. He claims. Anyway, we hope we'll have him on the program uh, next week. Right now, Thomas Horn stays with us. The Wormwood Prophecy. And uh, we were talking about the near-Earth object wide-field infrared survey, NEOWISE. It sounds like they're trying to maybe obfuscate, muddy the water with regards to Apophis's ETA. So, carry on. What are they saying now about Apophis? Yeah, let me put it this way. If a person gets the book, The Wormwood Prophecy, and by the way... Right now, we have the biggest giveaway in the history of Skywatch Television. If people go to skywatchtv.com, right at the top, they'll see like a video up there, and there's a, an ad they can click on. We're desperate to try to get this book in the hands of as many people as we possibly can. Now, if, if they get the book, and if they read the Wormwood Prophecy, they're going to find that while the book is nonfiction, we actually begin the first chapter of the book uh, with a narrative. And it is describing something similar to, like, the opening scenes of the movie Deep Impact. Did yes. you see that movie? Okay. Oh, yes. Where you have a comet, and it's hurtling towards Earth. It can mean the end, uh, you know, of all or much of human life. And the U.S. government, and not just the U.S. government, international space agencies. There are 70 of them, which is an interesting number, 70 of them around the world, uh, and they are trying to keep the threat under wraps. Why? Out of fear that public chaos uh, would lead to martial law and just absolute disruption and chaos. Out of and, and that is, by the way, that is what I saw uh, in my night vision in my dream utter chaos people in utter panic running in every direction begging their gods to deliver them but anyway the 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 book starts out with this narrative and then after you read chapter one's narrative where all these international space agencies are working together behind the scenes trying to figure out some way to mitigate the threat of apophis um then it goes to uh, chapter 2, and it says, Chapter 1 was fiction, or is it? Mm. Uh, and don't, you know, sigh a breath of relief thinking that there's no real cause for alarm, because the truth is there are significant reasons that I've come to believe that undisclosed facts that are stranger and scarier than the opening fictional narrative uh, should chill people to the bone. And, yeah, it involves a cover-up of the highest order by national space agencies, including at NASA. And then I immediately go into verifying that fact so that people understand that I'm not alone in my conspiratorial thinking. For example, um, I cite a recent peer-reviewed paper. Uh, long name. Let me give you the name of this so that people can Google it and read it for themselves. Here's the name of the peer-reviewed paper in, a, in, in an astronomy science magazine. Here's what it's called. It's called, quote, 
an empirical examination of wise neo-wise, near-Earth object, wide-field, infrared survey, explorer, asteroid analysis, and results. It's catchy. That's, yeah, that's the name <laughs> of it. But it is by Nathan Mirvold. Uh-huh. Some of your listeners will already know who Nathan is. He Bill Gates' before. second brain, as you call him in the, uh, in the that's book. That's exactly right. Former chief uh, tech officer at Microsoft. He's a true polymath. He's a working scientist. Uh, He's published, and I've read a lot of his papers, original research in paleobiology, climatology, but more importantly, with regard to the Wormwood prophecy, astronomy. Uh, He he holds over 800 U.S. patents. Uh, The Economist, by the way, describes Mirvold as Bill, uh, Bill Gates' second brain, and they're the ones that point out that he is almost always on the A list of the world's 100 greatest scientific thinkers. So this guy's got credentials. He is he is highly respected um, and uh, has the what? You know, has the credentials to back it up. But in his paper, and you have to read this paper, um, because he charges NASA and the NEOWISE team with a cover-up. He talks about systematic errors, inconsistencies, all that, but then he goes beyond that, and literally almost to the point of being a whistleblower. You know, everybody in, uh, in the government right now talking about whistleblowers. Well, he's a real whistleblower who says that NASA has deliberately, these are his words, deliberately misreported the threat uh, by uh, these near-Earth objects uh, he says that they have behaved extremely deceptively with deliberate scientific misconduct in a cover-up of very real potential imminent space threats. Now, he's not the only one. I go through a series of these in the book to provide some backup for my claim by persons who would be highly respected, uh, who likewise are saying... There is a cover-up, and then, of course, it becomes a question of, you know, what is it that they're covering up? Let me just, uh, because we've just got a, about a minute here before the top of the hour, and we'll carry on uh, into the second hour. Thomas Horn will stay with us for the entire show, and we'll open up the phone lines as well. But just let me ask you a couple of things about Neowise. First of all, uh, who, who funds them? Are they a government agency? Are they funded by NASA? Are they a branch of NASA? Yeah, they're a branch of NASA. They are funded through NASA, but they're, of course, funded by me and you, uh, taxpayers, through the federal government as part of our space agency. Okay, so they publish this data, uh, that, that, and they talk about near-Earth objects that may be a threat, those that aren't, and they're using some sort of a mathematical formula, I guess. And so um, this great thinker, Bill Gates' second brain, uh, he is saying that their, their their mathematical calculations are deceptive in order to to hide the truth. Is that yeah. the gist of it? Uh, well, he he says here's a quote from his paper. I just gave everybody the title. They can just actually Google Mirvold uh, and and astronomy or whatever, and they'll find this paper because it's it's out there now. And it was published only I don't know maybe 120 days ago. Uh, and he says this, quote, the issues that I am calling misconduct in the Neowise papers were not inadvertent. In other words, these are not mistakes. 
they are deliberate, he says, choices made repeatedly by the Neowise team over a long period of time. These actions have caused the astronomical community to work under the false belief that the Neowise results are more accurate, in other words, have smaller errors, than the evidence actually warrants, end quote. So it's a long paper, and I highly recommend it because of his bona fides. Right. But, but what Mirvold is saying is that the largest database in the world, more than all other sources combined of information detailing the diameters and the albedo and the properties of 164,000-plus asteroids, is suffering from intentionally, not, not just poor science, not just rushed calculations, but intentionally manipulated information at worst, or inadequate analysis at best, with the net result being that the public is being kept in the dark regarding, and then it's the big question mark. What? Question mark. Right. What is it that they are trying to hide? Thomas, and well, uh... I, I, I spend the entire book making the case that they are covering up for the real threat that is represented by Apophis in just nine years from now. All right. We'll uh, take a time out, and when we come back, second hour, Thomas stays with us. The Wormwood Prophecy, NASA, Donald Trump, and a cosmic cover-up of end-time proportions will also open up the phone lines and take questions and comments. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hi to those of you tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey, you... Streaming us live on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. How do to those of you in the uh, YouTube live chat. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Thomas Horn, author of The Wormwood Prophecy, stays with us this hour. So, Neowise, have they talked publicly about Apophis or is this information from your, uh, your insiders at NASA? Yeah, they did. I mean, if you go back to 2004, they and the Kitt Peak National Observatory astronomers and others begin studying. By the way, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. So all these different agencies were looking at this brand new asteroid that was discovered. And naming it Apophis, by the way, is interesting on a lot of levels that we probably won't even get time to talk about well, tonight. You're right, because if it was so innocuous, they would give it a rather banal name, because a lot of them are just numbers. They just number them. But here they name it after the Egyptian god of chaos, for crying out loud. Yeah, the god of chaos, the god of destruction. But this is also connected to some very important dates. If you get into Christian eschatology, especially dispensationalism, and what some people believe, I got my, my buddy, by the way, Steve Quayle, and they do not believe in what dispensationalists would call a pre-tribulation rapture. 
I've got other friends like Gary Stearman who do. And so when I started looking at the Friday the 13th date for Apophis striking the Earth, what shocked me was that if it is, in fact, biblical wormwood, most Bible expositors believe that the trumpet judgments happen in the middle of what they would call the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period, right? Right. So I took the date and backed it up, and exactly to the day, 3.5 years. So, the, you know, if it's the middle of the Tribulation when Apophis strikes, back up 3.5 years, it strikes the most important Jewish feast days that are connected to what these biblical expositors believe are connected to the rapture of the church, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. It's just fascinating. But staying with from the scientific side of it, you mentioned Neowise and you know what are they saying and what are they doing. I don't want people to think that Mirvold is the only scientist in this book that backs up what I'm saying. There's a whole list of people. For example, mathematician Harry Lear is another well-known scientist. He believes that Apophis is definitely going to strike the Earth in 2029, and he's even written a letter to Donald Trump begging him to have astronomers that work at NASA and inside the government recalculate their mathematics around Apophis, and he sent all of his reasoning to Donald Trump around why April the 13th, 2029, is the date on which this monster rock is going to impact the Earth. Again, NASA recently had, like, Robert Frost, who's one of their leading astronomers, and you might have saw him. He's, like, in some of the British uh, newspapers and tabloids and stuff and being interviewed by them. And he, too, talking about this, saying that there's 100% chance, 100% chance, that this Earth-fracturing rock is going to strike the Earth and saying that the only thing that public is going to be able to do is hunker down and pass out Bibles and learn how to pray. I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned uh, Trump, and, and we had this announcement about the Space Defense Force, this sixth branch of the U.S. military. And, and, you know, there are several reasons one can imagine you would want to start a Space Defense Force. You have space-based weapons, killer satellites, and so forth. You have, some might suggest, a possible alien invasion. But it sounds like you're suggesting the timing of this Space Defense Force has nothing to do with any of those reasons. It has everything to do with Apophis. I actually think it may have something to do with both. You know, don't forget that the idea of the Space Force isn't new. This goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan. And especially now that technology has changed, the idea of digital warfare. Colonel McGinnis, once again, who's been on your program evidently, could elaborate on the need for a Space Defense Force. But it was Trump that brought the concept to the forefront of the public mind, the general public. And now uh, I saw a news report on it this week, that literally the billions of dollars that are being set aside to be spent over the next five years to set up the Space Force. The U.S. Space Command is the fifth branch of the U.S. military. But in addition to digital warfare, they are also considering the idea of an asteroid threat, and that according to their own press releases, their own information. So I'm not stretching here trying to make a connection. Right. So current technology does not allow 
to avert such an impact? We couldn't use nuclear missiles. We couldn't no. use... No. Absolutely not. Here, so, here's, so here's the interesting part about this. I know some of the people around Donald Trump that are part of his faith community. I've done programs with them. Um, and, uh, and I know that they are in his ear. Uh, and these are prophecy believers. And they are whispering to him about Wormwood. Um, and that's not a stretch. Anybody that knows anything about the people around Donald Trump that are part of that faith community know that these are people that are believers in end times prophecy. Um, and uh, so that is a piece of this. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's every part of why the Space Force has been launched, but I'm saying that it is a part of it because asteroid mitigation is a part of what the of what NASA, Neowise, and everybody else are publicly admitting. Now, you know, I mentioned a moment ago that some of their own astronomers are, you know, they're doing media right now, and and one of the NASA's astronomers, you know, uh, was in the British tabloids recently, um, and he and he admitted, he said, there is no way that we could stop this asteroid, the size of it, the scope of it, how fast it's traveling. There is no way that we can target this. We're not going to send Bruce Willis uh, and his you know, team of, of astronauts up into space with nukes and nuke uh, Apophis because it's too large. Um, and so, first of all, you'd probably miss it because it's moving too quickly. But secondly, even if you hit it, um, its, it's gravitational field is so strong because of the size and scope of it that if you blew little bits and pieces of it off, it's just going to draw those parts back together. And now what you've done is probably fulfilled uh, Revelation chapter 8 in that you have radiated this giant rock, so it impacts the Earth. It blasts all this radiation now up into the upper atmosphere that moves around because of the air currents in the upper atmosphere and rains down on the Earth radiation. That's what NASA's own <laughs> astronomer was talking about, uh, and and perhaps... And I go into different ways in the book in which uh, wormwood could poison a third of the waters, but radiation is one of them based on our own efforts to try to blow this thing up. Right. Um, are there? Surely there are a whole host of very bright uh, amateur astronomers out there, or or even professional astronomers who also know this. Um, it seems to me several years ago uh, there was a um, an astronomer in Australia who who suddenly who died under rather mysterious circumstances. There may even be a death list. You know, there seems to be a death list for everybody. Uh, you know, um, naturopaths and JFK assassination witnesses and Clinton uh, associates. I'm sure. Is there a death list for astronomers too who might know the truth? Well, it seems like there could be, but here's the thing. Um, within, and, and I just now remembered what Sharon Gilbert had said, and she's right. Uh, within, oh, you know, four years, let's say, five years from right now, they won't be able to cover this up anymore. And that is because every home astronomer who can afford a, you know, somewhat commercial um, telescope is going to be able to look up into deep space and see Apophis headed towards Earth. And then, 
within six years from right now, you'll be able to see it with the naked eye at nighttime as a very bright spot headed towards Earth. Um, and then by 2028, the Earth is going to be in a panic. And so all I can tell you is if, 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 if people don't want to believe what I'm saying, obviously that's everybody's option. But so far, what I've seen has not been incorrect. In fact, I often wondered, you know, why did God allow me to see the exact date on which Benedict XVI um, was going to resign, and it was accurate? Why did, why did that? I don't, what's that got to do with anything? I mean, is it a piece of a puzzle? It, it confuses me. But it wasn't until the other day that uh, George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM said something that resonated with me. He said he allowed you to see that because the whole world saw that. Everybody on Earth knows that you did that prediction and you were right. And he did that to allow this, Wormwood, to be legitimized in their mind. That if he was correct on something so abstract as the resignation of Pope Benedict, something that had not happened in 500-plus years, and got it to the month and year, um, then maybe we ought to stop and, and listen to what he's saying about Apophis. Tell me about the simulation that scientists and strategists ran in Maryland back in May of this year. Hang on. Remind me what we're talking about now. Uh, 2019, they ran sort of a simulation which assumed a major asteroid impact in was it College Park, Maryland? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so you had all these um, strategists from all over the globe that took part. It was College Park. You're right. Um, the purpose of it was to just basically try to create a scenario in which we discover that an asteroid is racing towards the Earth, and now what are we going to do about it? So you get all these you know, skilled individuals that start talking hypothetically, about what they're going to do. And they know that this asteroid is going to impact the Earth in a 10-year period. Uh, and so it was a whole five-day simulation, uh, and it included uh, all of the scenarios, you know, day one, day two, day three, day four. Uh, day one, we discover the asteroid. Day two, it's, you know, we know that it's coming. There's no way we're going to stop it, so on and so forth. Day four, we tried, we failed. It's headed to the East Coast, day five. We did all we could, and it wasn't enough. Uh, and throughout that five-day exercise, the participants were faced with all of these foreseeable angles of the asteroid collision scenario. And at the end of the day, nothing we could do about it, and it wiped out a large part of planet Earth. And now, but again, what I would the, the question I would raise is why was that, game played out and i think it's soft disclosure and i think you're going to see more and more leading up to about four to five years from right now and finally you know home astronomers are going to be able to do their own calculations and more and more questions are going to rise and they won't be able to hide it forever and that's the scenario in the beginning of my book and at the end of the book where i do the fictional narrative uh based on what I think is actually happening behind the scenes right now. Billy Meyer, a famous UFO contactee, um, he claimed, I think, 1981, 
that he had been told by his alien contact, a, a council of ETs or whatever you want to call them, he was told about an asteroid hitting the Earth in 2029. Uh, now, Billy Meyer and his alien contacts, that doesn't exactly line up with sort of, you know, uh, a biblically approved list of sources, but what, what, do, you, what do you think Billy Meyer is on to? Um, well, so, uh, yeah, I will say a couple of things. Um, it, it was in the early 80s. Billy uh, Meyer did talk about a prediction. He said it was given to him by an alien by the name of Quetzal, which I can only assume is named after Quetzalcoatl, the uh, serpent god of Aztec and Mayan fame. Uh, but he did. Uh, many years ago, he talked about a red meteor that he said was going to collide with the Earth in 2029. So same year. Uh, and he said it was going to, you know, make contact somewhere along the tectonic plate of the north, uh, from the North Sea to the Black Sea. Um, so I've got Christian friends um, that would cast aspersions on his claims because he was coming from a different worldview. So he's right. talking about extraterrestrials and ETs and all that kind of thing. And other people that have said that some of his claims were uh, retrodictions, meaning that he made them up after the fact, or that some of them are being made up today by other people that are taking his predictions and they're saying that he said this, he said that um, <clears throat> after the fact. But the point is... Um, he did seem 25 years before the discovery of Apophis to be talking about what he called a red meteor that would strike the Earth in 2029. And some of his predictions are pretty eerie, actually. Uh, now, if there are people that are listening to this program and they're Christians like I am, and maybe they would say, well, what in the world, why would you give any credence to an individual like Billy Mayer, a Meyer, whatever you say his name. Um, <clears throat> I would just remind people that we do know, uh, even from the Bible, that there are uh, non-Christians that sometimes accurately predict the future. Uh, for example, Nebuchadnezzar illustrates how in times past God sometimes actually used non-believers, non-covenant, non-Hebrew, whatever you want to call them, to utter these divine insights. There's an amazing case in point uh, in which uh, God chose to reveal uh, a prophecy spanning from 605 B.C. through the second coming of Christ to this arrogant, narcissistic, idol-worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. Um now, it required God's prophet Daniel to interpret the dream, but, um, but he still gave it to this individual that, you know, it's probably not going to be uh, ordained, <laughs> you know, by the assemblies of right. God. Right. So if, Neb um, if, if, uh, if, he d if he gave information to Nebuchadnezzar, why not Billy Meyer? Listen, we have to take another time out, Thomas. We'll be back. Uh, boy, this is dire. This is grim. The Wormwood Prophecy, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. Thomas Horn is here with some very grim news. It's all detailed in the Wormwood Prophecy. NASA, Donald Trump, and a cosmic cover-up of end-time proportions. If this really is end times, we're talking about Friday, April the 13th, 2029, and there's nothing we can do about it, why tell us? Well, for the same reason that the Bible might, um, and that is to warn people of what is coming in the future and to cause them to evaluate who they are, where they are, what their relationship with God is, what their relationship with the Creator is. Um, and again, you know, you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, he said, which of the prophets have not your fathers murdered? <laughs> right? Um, people don't, they don't want to hear this stuff, and frankly, I don't actually want to talk about it. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a reluctant individual here. Um, when I woke up out of this dream, I was terrified to the bone. And the last thing on earth I wanted to do is what I'm doing right now, where I am saying to people, this is coming. And there is nothing that NASA can do to stop it. And they know there is nothing they can do to stop it. And right now, you know, people can just listen to me uh, talk about it, and they can say, well, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe not, whatever. But... In five to six years from now, things are going to change. And in six to seven years from now, the world is going to be on its face, crying out to their different gods, begging those gods to deliver them from what is coming. Now, as a, uh, as a, as a, a positive individual, I would want to believe that um, if enough people were crying out to God, it could be averted. And we've seen that in Scripture, too. There are examples in Scripture. Uh, you know, uh, Jonah. Um, the, the, the judgment against Nineveh was absolutely certain. But he said, if you pray, if you repent, sackcloth and ashes, the whole thing, then perhaps this will be averted. And it was. Um, you know, you know the king has has guy's life being extended. There's examples in the Bible uh, that if people do the right thing and they cry out to God, that perhaps these judgments can be averted. What as a as a prophecy believer, Revelation eight is going to happen, but is it going to happen in 2029? Might it happen sometime uh, after that? Um, and so, I, again, I, I just feel like that I am what I'm the I'm the agent. Uh, I'm the person that was given the responsibility to talk about it. And right now, I'm willing to bear, um, you know, the repercussions of people mocking me um, and. Uh, but again, if you read the book, The Wormwood Prophecy, it's not just Tom Horn. It's not just a charismatic guy with a vision. Um, this is also being discussed by some of the greatest minds on Earth today who also are alleging that NASA and other space agencies are involved in a cover-up 
uh, revolving around Apophis and the threat that it does pose. But, you know, here's a funny thing. NASA says that even if it misses Earth in 2029, their own website says it's going to come so close that it's going to knock out the satellites that are in orbit around our planet. So that is so stupid close that there is no way that you can actually say that it's not going to impact right it would cause already admitting that it's going to come that close even yeah even if it was a near miss it would cause just the the gravitational force it would cause tremendous seismic activity maybe an emp event i don't know about that but it would you know it'd be lights out uh all over the world and uh you know either way you cut it let's grab a call here doug is in indiana tonight this morning doug welcome to the conspiracy show you're on the line with thomas horn go ahead yeah tom uh, i think you're getting yourself all worked up to an ulcer and uh, you got to consider that uh, this planet has some really smart intelligent people in the aerospace industry in another decade what we'll be able to do with diverting this potential threat to mankind will be acting as using thermonuclear weapons either to destroy mankind or to be mankind's best friend by diverting. All it will take will be just a fraction of a degree at the earliest possible moment. We can vary that course of that asteroid, and it'd be no sweat. We wouldn't even have to sit there and worry about it. Don't you you agree? Um Doug, I hope you're right. I really honestly do. And I actually go into a lot of this stuff in the book uh, about, you know, mitigation efforts. By the way, I think that there are some technologies right now um, that are not, they're either not being talked about uh, or they're not perfected to the point that they can be talked about, but using lasers and other kinds of technologies to push uh, things uh, away from the earth, uh, but as a but as a Christian and a Bible believer, I know that Revelation eight is going to happen at some point. Uh, a large rock, an asteroid, as it says in the Greek, uh, is going to impact the earth. So that's that's where I'm coming from. That's my worldview. Um, I hope that it does not happen in 2029. I just believe that it's going to. Doug, thank you for the call. Thank you. Uh, if this is going to happen, and, and obviously uh, there are certain individuals in positions of power that know, that would be in the know. One would expect that they would be making efforts sort of in the interest of continuity of governance. Uh, you know, so we would, we would see, well, <laughs> we'd see a lot of tunneling. We would see uh, government agencies being moved out of Washington, D.C., being relocated, uh, these sorts of things. Are you getting any whiff of that going on? Yeah, I talk about it in the first chapter of the book. And, and don't forget that, uh, you know, uh, Project Noah's Ark, there have been uh, government-funded projects uh, over the last 20 years in which um, there are very large underground facilities where there's 20 years of food and stuff like that that's been set aside for the elite, um, and uh, and again, you know, the the um, uh, the narrative that I propose in the opening of the book that's a little bit similar to the movie Deep Impact, um, where 
they're going to call whatever. They're going to select individuals based on what they could contribute to the betterment and sustainability of humankind uh, to be taken into these underground facilities to be protected. So the, the plans have been in place for a while during the Jimmy Carter's era. Um, I would I would suggest people go and uh, and Google Jimmy Carter's area, the Project Noah's Ark. This is exactly what this was being designed for. So that's been in place uh, for some time. Hmm. Uh, and would 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 Trump be talking about this in in conversations with other world leaders? Would this conversation come up at a at a G7, at a G8, or uh, are they not in the know necessarily? Uh, well, let's just say that many of the people in the G7, the G8, um, and for that matter, um, you know, the, the 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 individuals that gather, uh, uh, what is it called, the um, the forest, you know, there in in the redwoods. Oh, uh, yeah, um, exactly. What, what is that? Yeah, I'm drawing a blank, but it don't matter. But yeah, so uh, people around the world, you know, leaders of countries, they're all involved right now in this conversation. Uh, and uh, so... All right, let me, let me grab a, another call here. Roger is in San Antonio. Roger, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Hey, hey, Richard. Uh, hey, this is Roger from uh, Texas. Welcome uh, aboard. I'm here in the in the chat. A shout out to all my chat buddies. Uh, I just had a quick comment, um, Richard. I uh, um, uh, a couple weeks ago I was going to talk to you, but but I didn't get a chance. Um, you know, I was at the JFK conference uh, in Dallas, and I met. I didn't realize that you had actually interviewed John Barber. I met John, this was back in 2016, and a bunch of other folks, and, and they all, they all know what's going on. I mean, because, you know, this, this whole thing about deep state and all of that, but, um, uh, so I was talking to them, and, and they all, they all, uh, on, I mean, they're not open about it, but they all appreciate what Trump is doing, and, and all of us in the, in the U.S., I just discovered your show. I saw you actually way back introducing jim mars but um i just wanted to say keep doing the great work that you're doing and and god bless you brother all right roger thank you for that uh i'm not sure if roger is listening to this broadcast or whether he's hearing it in delay on one of our affiliates but uh, right now of course we are talking about apophis and uh wormwood the wormwood prophecy um it has been suggested by uh, people like Richard Dolan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Richard Dolan. He's a noted ufologist, UFO disclosure advocate. But he's a pretty good researcher and a pretty good historian. And he talks about the elites. He talks about a breakaway civilization, that they possess certain technology um, that is it almost, well, it, because they are so far ahead of where we are in terms of the technology they possess, they, they could be classified as a separate civilization. And he believes that's, that they may, in fact, already sort of be off-world. They may have that technology. They may have deep space platforms. 
Um, anyway, we're running up against a break here. I want to I want to come back to that point and ask you. Uh, there's a reason I bring that up. But we'll uh, we'll come back. More of my conversation with Thomas Horn, the Wormwood Prophecy. More phone calls await as well. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty in the GTA. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free from just about anywhere. One eight six six seven forty four seven forty. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Thomas Horn, longtime TV radio personality, best-selling author, publisher, CEO of Skywatch TV, skywatchtv.com. And uh, if you order the Wormwood Prophecy from the uh, the store there at skywatchtv.com, uh, well, there there's just a uh, a ton of bonus material. Uh, that will be made uh, made available to you for free. Uh, I think I have that right, correct, Thomas? Yeah, we're doing this for the uh, month of December, and it's it's actually nine hundred dollars. It's just like seventy books, um, survival gear, just just a huge amount of product, uh, audio files. So all of that is being made available uh, at no cost for people that buy the Wormwood Prophecy through SkyWatchTV.com right now. All right. I was mentioning the, this theory that there's this breakaway civilization. These are the elites uh, that have um, unimaginable technology at their disposal. Some people might believe that it's back-engineered from UFO crashes. Other, Who knows uh, where it comes from. But if they have it, we don't. And... Um, I mean, that kind of makes sense, you know, if they're off-planet, why politicians or why the elites really just don't seem to give a damn of what, what's going on here on the planet. If they are, if they are anticipating, if they know about Wormwood, uh, and they're already off-planet or they have their deep underground uh, bunker, they, they really could give a rat's behind about what happens to the rest of us. Does that, that make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think for some people, that's probably true. And don't forget that it was in the 60s. Um, you know, you had this whole decade of deliberation negotiations regarding issues like military disarmament. <clears throat> but they were talking about the Outer Space Treaty. Remember that? Yes. The treaty on principles governing the activities of the states, the exploration of outer space. And, and, and if you go and read those papers... <clears throat> They're, they're actually kind of tantalizing in that they seem to allude to um, knowledge, expertise, technology that are beyond anything that we would understand today. Colonel McGinnis, you know, talking about future war uh, at the Pentagon, this stuff's way beyond that, uh, way beyond weapons of mass destruction. But all of that language was included in the 1960s outer space treaties um, and so I just encourage people to go read that now why am I mentioning that because um, I mentioned that I have a friend when I was writing the Wormwood Prophecy I reached out to him um, he is a senior flight analyst uh, with above top secret security clearance at NASA and again I can prove this um, and um, 
he gave me information that echoed kind of what you're talking about right now, that some of the people um, at NASA, NEOWISE, some of the people that are in this community of astronomers who know what's going to happen in 2029 and the plans that they're making around it and what they're doing for their families and all that. Um, and, and originally, I had his name in the book, in the Wormwood Prophecy, and Charisma Publishing. I gave them this book, even though I own my own publishing house. I did an experiment with them, a one-time thing. And I gave them the book, uh, and the people from Charisma would verify that I had him in the book, I had information from him in the book, but then something happened. We were in our um, uh, 2019 conference in Branson, um, and he showed up. Derek met him, Sharon met him, but he said, i got to talk to you. And we went into a back room. And in that back room, he starts telling me, hey, you have to take my name and the information that I gave you, you have to take it out of the book immediately. It can't be published. And it turned out that he had been drawn before an adjudicator, uh, the uppity-ups at NASA, um, and uh, he had been threatened. And at a minimum, with losing his you know, his contract with the government, his job, his retirement, all that. But I had a feeling it was something more than that. And he said, you have got to get my name out of there, man. I'm going to be in, I've got major issues, big trouble. So I got a hold of Charisma, and I said, we have to take XYZ's name out of the book and what he told me out of the book. Uh, And so we did that. Now, But it was part of the other stuff that he told me that day um, that had to do with probably something kind of like what you're talking about, Richard. Um, Breakaway civilizations? It wasn't just compartmentalization. It was also that the asteroid is being viewed as a messenger. Um, You know, in the ancient world, all these cultures, asteroids... These things inspired wonder, dread. They were saw as harbingers of doom, omens of disaster, uh, messengers of the gods themselves. Um, This goes to the Roman prophecies, the Sibylline oracles, the Epic of Gilgamesh, all of these that talked about these uh, asteroids as carrying pertinent information. to the earth and frankly I was kind of blown away with what he was telling me and I'm being really careful here because I have to be careful that he can't be connected through this conversation but okay I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here we're gonna take another one final time out and uh, you just get all your ducks in a row and I know you want to be careful so during the break you can have a few moments just to sort of collect yeah, yourself and we'll come back and uh, you lay yet another bombshell on us, I guess, as if we needed one. Uh, Thomas Warren stays with us. The Wormwood Prophecy, right here on The Conspiracy Show.
It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Apophis, a space rock, approximately four football lengths, football fields rather, in length, expected to collide with our planet Friday, April the 13th, 2029, and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, short of falling down on our knees and praying for divine intervention, which is possible. Um, anyway, you had this NASA insider who you were originally going to publish his name and some of his information in the book, and then he asked you to remove his name. Uh, you were about to tell us about what he had to say vis-a-vis uh, Apophis being some sort of a messenger. Yeah, so I've known him for a long time, and by the way, um, I've pub- I. No, I won't say that. I've published his name elsewhere. Let me just leave it at that. I won't say where. Um, Derek and Sharon Gilbert met him at our conference. Um, I've known him for years. He's a guy that's known by the known. So if you if you look at my publishing house, the people that I publish, including people that are deeply part of the U.S. Pentagon and places like that, um, He's a guy that is known by them, and um, and he has high-level security clearance and has to have because when you're a senior flight analyst for NASA, <laughs> you know you got to make sure that you're you're working with projects that terrorists or other crazy people wouldn't be able to you know uh, create problems for those projects. But anyway. He came to me, came at the conference, um, and uh, and he said, you have to get my name out of the book. Now, we went in the back room, and um, he's telling me all about this adjudicator, and he's been drawn in in front of these people, and I've got to get his name out of the book. But then he gets into this, it's a very curious conversation, and it has to do with Apophis as a messenger now here's why here's why this really struck me because a few years ago i had reached out to him him and one of his friends um and uh, it was during if you remember um richard the european space agency's rosetta mission yes and they landed the probe delay on what was believed to be um, a comet, yes. Comet 67P. And there was this strange sound that was coming off the comet. Remember that? Yes, yes. Um, and uh, and people were making attempts at these explanations for the phenomenon, vibrations being set off by a stream of charged particles ejected from the surface of the space rock, all that kind of stuff. But... I, I had wondered at the time, okay, I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that that's all there is to this, but because I have a friend, um, two actually, but mostly him, deeply entrenched at the highest levels of our space agencies, I reached out. Uh, and I said, this thing, they're calling it the song, the song. You can actually still go to Google now and and you know, type in the Rosetta song, and you can get the the sound file for that. Um, and um, and I wanted to know 
is this just, you know, what, sound vibrations as this thing moves through space, it's all just natural, or is there any possibility there's something else more to this? And I recall at the time, I actually reached out to my old friend Chuck Misler, uh, and Dr. Ah, yes. Misler now has been dead for a couple of years, but he was a really good friend of mine, very close. I mean, he came and spent time at my home, uh, and, you know, we hang out. Um, I, and I said, Chuck, do you know anybody in a research or intelligence agency that might have access to, what, a supercomputer or some other system that could slow down these sound waves on the Rosetta Comet and check for me if there's any repeatable patterns? I just want to make sure. It's a long shot, um, but I'm just wondering if there might be some type of, you know, what, replicating synthetic non-organic right. code, Intelligence. if you will. yeah. In the sound. Uh, and so Chuck, he knew a man uh, that had been vo- involved very early on in developing audio technology. He said he was a bona fide genius. And right now, frankly, as I'm on this show, I can't even remember his name. Um, but he sent me his contact info. I sent him the audio recording, and I would not tell him where it came from. But I just sent it to him from the Rosetta, and I asked him if he could check it to you know, are there any repeating patterns, whatever, in it, mathematical something, what? Um, and um, I didn't hear from him for the longest time. Then finally he contacted me and he said, um, has anybody else that's listened to this pattern become sick, physically sick, from listening to the audio recording? And I emailed him back and I said, no, because you're the only one I've sent it to. Uh, anyway, he died before he could even do the analysis oh, for me. So when I didn't hear anything more, I reached out to this friend at NASA um, and his second scientist friend, and I asked him if they could take a look at it, and they did. They took a stab at it using Fourier-based uh, deconvolution for resolving what they call the ciliographic signals. we got about three minutes here, Tom. So I just Well, I'm okay, so we're going to run out of time, but they sent me a very long report. It was a strange finding uh, in which they said that the signal indicated there was something more than noise in a pure random process. There was this magnetic field interaction. Um, and it was it was very, very intriguing to me. And so since we're going to run out of time, um, we'll have to talk about this on a different program. But they found that there were um, non-organic uh, markers in that in that sound that to them could be only interpreted as a message that was being carried, and so the European Space Agency, NASA, they were all uh, interested in this. So jump forward to now, he meets with me uh, in Branson this year. You have got to take my name out of this thing right now. I've been drawn before an adjudicator. I'm being threatened. And I had a feeling it was more than just his job in retirement, and it had something to do with Apophis as a messenger uh-huh. that is headed towards Earth. Well, we're going to have to have you back on again, Thomas, and we can delve further into this. Um, I guess, well, we've got about a minute here. <laughs> what to do? I just Does this fit into, it doesn't fit into my sort of 
basic understanding of how the un- end times are supposed to unfold. I mean, is there time between now and 29 for a tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist, a false peace in the Middle East, uh, you know, the battle of Gog and Magog? I mean, how is this all going to un- un- unravel before this cataclysm? Yeah, so if you're a pre-tribulation rapture believer, uh, and I know that many of you are not, you probably are not, but if you're a pre-tribulation rapture believer, then you would back up three and a half years from Friday the 13th, 2029. Uh, you wind up at October 13th, 2025. And guess what? That's the exact day of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which was the time when the Jews celebrated being delivered from the gods of Egypt, including the uh, god of chaos, Apophis. Mm. Um, and uh, two weeks earlier than that is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, when the shofar is blown 100 times, and most dispensationalists think that the rapture is going to occur during that day. Why? Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep, we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, he said the same thing to the Thessalonians. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, at the sound of the trumpet of God. So um, we don't have time to go into that tonight. We're out of time. But there are some very, very, very odd... Now, if you're not a pre-tribulation believer, it's also interesting because April 2029 is Passover. Ah, And Passover, too, was Egypt being delivered during the night when all of the firstborn are being destroyed, and God says, if you put the blood of the uh, lamb on the doorpost of your home, I will pass over you. So there's both, both three and a half years before middle, and three and a half years later, all three of these fall on very, very important Jewish feast days that are connected by Christians to the Christology of the New Testament. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Fascinating. I hope you can come back and we'll uh, we'll talk further. Thank you so much for this, Thomas. And it's uh, skywatchtv.com. You can order yeah, the book right there. com biggest giveaway in the history of humanity <laughs> right now. Uh, thanks, Richard, for having me on your program. Thank you. So long for now. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.